Right, if you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible and the black ones around you, that'll be page 991. Please open that up and go there. When we launched this series, uh, just verse by verse through the book of 1 Timothy, several weeks ago, I went really, really old school and I read the entire thing to you, just like Timothy would have done when he received that letter from Paul. He would have stood in the church and he would have read the entire thing. And so we did that. And when I, when I did that on January the 28th, the portion of Scripture, when I read the whole thing, that created the most chatter that I, that I heard from community groups and just people, right? That created the most chatter was the text that we have before us this morning. And so let me just read it to you. And you'll see why. First Timothy chapter two, beginning in verse eight, Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. That is, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. This isn't a compliment to Adam. This is actually a put-down. Because while the woman was deceived, he wasn't. He willingly, eyes wide open, sinned. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And so I get why it created some chatter. Learn quietly with all submissiveness. I don't permit a woman to, to teach or have exercise authority over a man. And so I get that. All right. When you read this, just I mean, it's a difficult text and just a cursory reading through it uh, proves that out. And, and it's hard both in what it says and in how it says it. And then you add to the fact that, that this text has so often been ripped out of its context and abused by sin-filled male chauvinistic cultures to push women down and subjugate them when, one, nothing could be further from the aim of this text, and two, the context of this passage is specific to the local church gathering. All right, it's not applicable in other settings. This is for the local church gathering. Now, with that said, let me just you know come out from the get-go and make sure you understand where I'm going to be going with this. In local church gatherings, are there distinctions between the possible roles of men and women? Yes, there's exactly one and only one. And we'll get to it here in just a little bit. But again, I want to emphasize like, the big thing I, want, I need you to get from the get go. I'm repeating it for emphasis is that this is not a broad brush that applies to all male female interactions. It is absolutely specific to a corporate worship gathering. Again, that's the context. When we got into chapter 2, verse 1, we're in the context of a local church gathering. And so verses 1 through 7, Paul started, he was giving reminders of some things they might have forgotten. He was reminding them of the importance of prayer and mission in the context of a local church gathering. That's verses 1 through 7. We talked about that last week. And then now, verses 8 through 15, <clears throat> that we've got this morning, he's reminding us uh, of the importance of a few specific gender roles in the life of the corporate worship gathering. And so that's the context. Make sure we hang on to that. That's going to be key as we make our way through this. And so with that said, let's let's make our way 
through it. We're going to be pretty quick in verses 8, 9, and 10. Maybe I should have broken this because there's a lot of good application that could be, uh, you know, pulled out from that, but we're not going to have time for it. So we're going to be fast through 8, 9, and 10, and then we'll slow down when we get to verse 11, which is everybody's, you know, that's what you're here for. So we'll slow down when we get to that. So again, verses 1 through 7, Paul's been talking about prayer. That's the context, all right, in the corporate worship gathering. And so now verses 8 and 9, he applies that specifically to men and women. And so he says, first of all, to the men. Look at it with me, verse 8. I desire then that in every place, all the churches, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And so the standard practice at that time when you prayed was to pray like this. This was the standard practice. That's how most of the time people prayed in the New Testament. But the focus here isn't so much on the position. Because as you look throughout the rest of the Scriptures, you see all kinds of different positions. You see people sitting, you see people standing, you see people kneeling, you see people falling to the ground, you see people prostrate on their face, you see people with hands lifted up, you see people with hands folded, all kinds of different positions. So the focus is not the position of the person, it's the position of their heart. And they're called, specifically men, we are called to pray in holiness without anger, without quarreling. To put it more positively, and this is number one in your notes, men should pray in holiness, love, and peace. Men should pray in holiness, love, and peace. This is what our prayer should be marked by. And so men, are they? Or better yet, are you? Am I? Are we marked by holiness? Are we marked by love? Are we marked by peace? Would someone describe you as a holy person? Would someone describe you as a loving person? Would someone describe you as a peaceful person? This is what God calls us to, and so fight for it, man. Fight. Fight to be this way. Fight to live these out. Fight your sin. Fight your propensity to anger. Fight your propensity to quarrel. And fight to be holy. Okay, be a man. Fight for these. This is how we are to pray. Always. But especially, and contextually here, in in public when the church gathers. Okay, men are to pray in holiness. Love and peace. And likewise, women are also called to pray in the corporate church gathering. But the Lord gives us a couple of different qualities apart for the ladies. And so look at verse 9 real quick. Likewise, likewise what? Likewise that they are praying just like the men. That women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. And so again, that word likewise, that's setting the context. Women are expected to not only be in the corporate worship gathering, but be participants, vocal, out loud, praying out loud, just like the men were. And so the point here is that while men are to pray publicly without argumentation, women are to pray publicly without flaunting. Either their looks or their wealth. And so number two in your notes. Women should pray and adorn themselves with modesty, decency, and good works. Okay? Women should pray, just like men should pray. Women should pray and adorn themselves with modesty, decency, and good works. And I want to make sure we don't misunderstand. This is not a call, and there is no call in all of Scripture for ladies to just neglect their appearance and try to absolutely conceal their beauty. That is not in the Bible. And what the call here is, ladies, is to be more concerned with the beauty of your inward self than you are your outward self. To have those in line properly. 
And just specifically, like this stuff about braided hair and jewelry and costly attire, contextually, where, where, where are they at? Like, where is First, Tim, where, First Timothy? Where is Timothy pastoring? Ephesus. He's in Ephesus. Does anybody remember from Acts when we went through that years ago what God or goddess is like specifically worshipped in Ephesus? Artemis. Okay, you can read about this in Acts chapter 19. Artemis is specifically worshipped there. I'm glad everybody got that one. I mean, everybody knew what we were talking about. So we did a great job with Acts when we went through that a couple years ago. But this Greek goddess Artemis, she had priestesses or prostitutes. There's some debate uh, among scholars about that. But either way, they wore their hair in these elaborate braids, like vertical. So I don't know if this is like, you know, 1950s beehives, but they wove it together in braids and they put jewels all all in it as well. And so it's just these elaborate braids and these elaborate jewels just gaudy with him. And so what Paul is is calling here to the ladies in Ephesus is, is don't dress like that. So in essence, what he is saying is, ladies, don't confuse people with the way you dress as to who you worship. Or more pointed, don't come to church dressed like a prostitute. But not only is he telling them what not to wear, he's also them what to wear and how to wear it. Right? Because he says respectable attire so that's what to wear. How? With modesty and self-control. Modesty and self-control. And so to be sure, the Bible is not saying that Christian women just need to wear denim jumpers all the time. Okay? And the Bible is not saying wear the worst possible clothes that you can possibly find. This is not a thou shalt always be out of style commandment or a thou shalt always look as bad as you possibly can commandment. That is not what the Bible is saying here. Okay, what's being forbidden here is not even like specific hairstyles or owning jewelry or wearing nice clothes, but using such things in an immodest and indecent way. Confusing people about who you are. And so the call is not to be overly concerned with how we look. Value the inward beauty more than the outward beauty. And so I love what Philip Ryken writes. He says this. He says, the way to be more attractive is through godliness, not gaudiness. A woman is made beautiful by what she does, not what she wears. And this means that the older a woman gets, the more beautiful she can become. Outwardly, the aging process cannot be reversed. Inwardly, a godly woman is becoming more and more beautiful all the time. And that is true because true beauty comes from the inward person. The qualities of the heart. And so men pray with holiness, love and peace. And likewise women pray adorning yourselves with modesty, decency, and good works. Alright, and that brings us to verse 11. And so look at verse 11 with me. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And so a lot of times when people in, like, in our day and time, when we read that, we freak out because of the last few words. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. But when Timothy read this to the church at Ephesus, everyone freaked out because of the first few words. The fact that he said, let a woman learn. Like in that day, in that culture, that was nuclear. That was unheard of. This was culture shattering. This was glass, I mean, glass ceiling. This is just destroying everything. This was unheard of. In the Roman world, first century, just no bones about it, women were considered intellectually second-class citizens. They were considered inherently mentally inferior to men. I mean, listen to the way 
rabbis spoke of women in the Jerusalem Talmud. This is what they said, which is a collection of writings. And it reads like this. It would be better for the words of the Torah, that's the first five books of the Bible, it would be better for the words of the Torah to be burned than that they should be entrusted to a woman. That's the mindset of rabbis. All right? In a different location, rabbis wrote this. I'm talking about like when people come together to worship in the synagogue, men come to learn, women come to hear. As in they can't learn. This was the way it culture was. It was just this unbelievably evil, sexist, chauvinistic, sinful, gross marring of the image of God. Within the Word of God here, through the pen of Paul, busts onto the scene and just dismantles all this sin and wrongheadedness when he says, let a woman learn. I mean, this is just culture altering. Let a woman learn. Not only that women should learn, but that they could learn. And so before we go any further, make sure you understand contextually and culturally the magnitude of this statement. It cannot be overstated. In this day, I mean, the, with these four words, the Bible right here, verse 11, has brought liberation to women. This is foreign to the Roman world until this moment. This is another example of how Christ and through His church has changed the world. And so on the cultural hand, this call for women to learn was revolutionary. But on the biblical hand, it's just normative. Straightforward. Logical. Because Scripture teaches that women are made in the image of God. Just like men. And have been called to be disciples of Christ, which requires learning. This thing about the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and what? Teaching them. So teaching, like, it's about learning. And so women have a responsibility before God to be students of his word. To be students of his word. And the church is the primary place that the spirit shapes all of Christ's followers, men and women, into the image of Christ through the teaching and the preaching of his word and the reading of it. And so that's why Paul, in the context of a local church gathering, chapter two is all about a local church gathering, says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, let a woman learn. And so for all the shots that Christianity and the Bible take from people wrongly accusing the Bible of being sexist, it is the Bible and Christianity itself that has brought the improvement in women's status over the last 2,000 years. It's Christianity that did that. Not that we've always gotten it right, because we haven't. And we've got a long ways to go Nevertheless, the Bible and Christianity has brought the change. This was foreign. This was revolutionary to the culture. And so Paul just utterly liberating says, let a woman learn. And so just pretty straightforward in your notes there, number three, women should learn the Scriptures. Straightforward. Women should learn the Scriptures. Right? Yes, absolutely. Read your Bible. But specifically, Paul's talking here about like this moment when the church gathers. Women and men are in here to learn the scriptures. And so that's why we preach expository sermons. Right? I would not be preaching this if it was up to me. If I was choosing, this would not be the text for the day. Right? So we preach expository so that because we teach, we preach the word, all of it, full counsel. And so you don't need me to stand up here and tell you 27 ways to be a better mom or 17 ways to be a better dad or 28 ways to be a better employee. You need me just to teach you the Scriptures and let the Holy Spirit apply that to your life. And I'll give some application as well. But you need the Word. And so that's what we do. 
Learn the scriptures. Women, you are to learn the scriptures. Men, you are to learn the scriptures. But how? Specifically, as he's talking to ladies here, how are they to learn the scriptures? Well, verse 11, first of all, says quietly. And notice the word is quietly. It is not silent, even though the NIV, if you have it, translates it wrongly that way. It is, like Greek context, it is quiet. It is not silent. There's different words that can be used. It's quiet. And so the word does not mean that women can't say anything. And obviously, we just know contextually that's not the truth because they're praying. They're praying out loud publicly in the corporate worship gathering. So obviously, they're not being silent. And so obviously, it can't mean silence. Instead, what it's referring to is just a general demeanor. Similar to chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul writes about living a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so it's a disposition of quietness. It's a disposition of gentleness. In other words, it's a teachable spirit. That's how you learn. You've got to have a teachable spirit. And so let a woman learn, first of all, quietly, and then secondly, in all submissiveness. And the idea of willing submission is a thoroughly Christian idea. And the verbal form of this word that's used here is used all throughout the New Testament to describe the submission of Christians to God the Father, the submission of everything to Christ, the submission of one Christian to another, the mutual submission, the submission to authority, and the submission of wives to husbands. Okay, but the submission Paul is speaking of here is to the ones who are doing the teaching in the church. And who are the ones who do the teaching in the context of a corporate worship gathering? This is not a hard question. What is my title? Pastor, elder, right? So it's not hard. You know this. It's elders. He's speaking about elders, that submit to the elders. And so despite how this text has been abused, this verse in no way, shape, or form is a call for all women to submit to all men. No, it is just a call here to the men teaching the Word, that is, to the elders. And so the call to let a woman learn quietly in all submissiveness, just means that she's responding to the leadership and authority that God has given the elders of the church. And so that's what it means. And so, but, but think about that for just a minute. Do, do those things really apply only to women? Aren't, aren't we all supposed to submit to the elders? Hebrews 13, 17. Yeah, absolutely. And then this whole idea of learning and quietness and submission, is that not how all people learn? I mean, any teacher knows that it's impossible to teach someone who's talking all the time. So a couple of years ago, I uh, had to, kind of got roped in because there was no one else. Um, I coached a girls U5 soccer team. And at the beginning of the season, I had these grand ideas even though I'd never played soccer, that I was going to make these, we were just going to be world beaters. We were going to be the mighty ducks of Nolensville soccer. All right? So that's what I had. And then after our first practice, I kind of scaled back my goals and they became as long as we have a snack and no one wets their pants. That was a good game. <laughs> but part of our problem that season was that we had one particular player who just would not stop talking just would not stop talking. And so she couldn't learn. She could not learn the game. Because good learning requires good listening. And so to listen well, you have to be quiet. You can't learn well if you're always talking. All right? And then learning also requires being teachable. Re receiving instruction in humility. I mean, it doesn't matter how great of an athlete you are, all the talent in the world, if you're not coachable, you will not reach your potential. You have to be 
coachable. To be coachable, to be teachable means you are humble and you will submit to the one who is coaching you, who is teaching you for your benefit. And so that's, I mean, this is how everyone learns. And Paul's just calling it out here. Women like men learn the Scriptures. And women like men are to do so quietly in glad submission to the elders. Alright, not blind gullibility with a general trust. Trust your elders or replace them. And so that's verse 11. It's just saying women are to learn and here's, here's how all people learn. Quietly and in all submission. But then we come to verse 12 and this is where we really get into the thick of things. Alright, and so as we do, there are some dangers here I want to call out that we need to be aware of and we need to be careful of as we walk into verse 12. The first one is we've got to be careful of letting culture overrule Scripture. We've got to be careful of that. Secondly, we've got to be careful of letting our personal opinions overrule Scripture. And then third, we've got to be careful of just letting tradition overrule Scripture. We've always done it this way, this is the way it is. Eh, let's check the Scriptures. Alright, Scripture is the final arbiter on all things. And so with those dangers in mind, being careful about our not letting culture overrule Scripture, being careful to not let our personal opinions overrule Scripture, and being careful not let tradition overrule Scripture, I want us to proceed here humbly. It's imperative we walk into this humbly and acknowledge that every single one of us comes into this with baggage and every single one of us comes into this with assumptions. Some of which are absolutely right, but maybe some of which aren't. And so we need to be willing to be corrected by the Scriptures and look to the Scripture, not culture, not tradition, not personal opinion, to inform us as to what the Bible says. All right, and so here we go. Look at verse 12 with me. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing. Specifically, there's actually a definite article there, through the childbirth. So more than likely referring to Christ. This is very similar to Genesis chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And so what does all this mean? All right, specifically, when it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. What, what does that mean? What does Paul say here? What is it? What is it? What is he getting after? Well, the first thing I've got to do is I've got to teach you two rules of something called hermeneutics. Okay? Two rules of hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is just the science of how you interpret the Bible. Okay, so two rules of hermeneutics. And you may want to write these down. This is true always, not just in this passage. These are two, like take them to the bank, rules of hermeneutics. The first one is that Scripture interprets Scripture. So where something's not completely clear in Scripture, other Scriptures interpret it. All right? And so since that is true, the second rule, which is really just kind of like 1A, I guess, is that we use more clear texts of Scripture to help explain the less clear texts of Scripture. Does that make sense? So when you come to something and you're like, I don't really know what this says, you don't just be like, well, I, I'm just going to, I don't know what it says, but I'm just going to take it. That's, that's how cults get started. All right? You need to look at the totality of the Bible. What is it saying? Because the Bible is a cohesive unit. It is not contradictory. So you interpret less clear passages of Scripture with more clear passages of Scripture. And so as we apply these two rules of hermeneutics to this passage, the first thing I want us to do is kind of walk through what this can't mean. What it can't mean. When we look at the rest of Scripture, what, what this can't mean when it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. 
And so what this can't mean, first thing that this cannot mean, is that it cannot mean that God favors one gender or that one gender is supreme. It cannot mean that from the rest of Scripture. I mean, we've already talked a little bit about it, but in the beginning, God created mankind in His image. And He created them male, and He created them female, completely equal in value, worth, dignity, intelligence, on and on we could go, just an equality here. And yet at the same time, there is something more to masculinity and femininity than mere plumbing and cultural expressions. And there is something beautiful and true and distinct and reflective about God that is imaged by both of the genders. That it takes some of the more intrinsic qualities and wirings of a man to image God rightly, and it takes some of the more intrinsic qualities and wirings of a woman to image God properly. Both of them together are needed. But in the church, a lot of times we don't believe that. We either think that there is no difference in the genders whatsoever, egalitarianism, or we think they are completely different and man is the absolute authoritarian ruler, patriarchalism. And so on the one hand, you have this chauvinistic, dominating and abusive culture. And then on the other hand, you have this sex-blind, gender-leveling, unisex culture. And both of these are errant. Both of them. The reality is that God did make the genders in some ways with no difference. And God did make the genders in some ways with difference beyond just biology. And He intends for these differences to complement one another. This is God's very good design before fall and before sin came into the world, the fall of man and mess things up. Before that, God designed the man and the woman to work in a complementarian relationship for human flourishing in the world and in the church and in the home. And so one gender is not better than the other or more favored by God. This cannot mean that. But let me just chat for just a minute to the men in here and challenge you on a couple of things if you are not already there. I want to challenge you to think biblically about women. They are made in the image of God. When you see a woman, she is not to be an object of your sexual gaze. She is not inherently below you. She is your sister. And she is in the church a co-heir with you of Christ. Daughter of the King of glory, meaning she is glorious. And she is in every way your equal, spiritually, intellectually. This is who she is. And if you don't regard her that way, if you don't regard women that way, you need to repent. No one obeys Jesus while mistreating or maligning the opposite sex that God stamped with His image. And so the whole idea of like a girl as a put-down, when you get who God is and that the king of the universe says that female, like this female say this about me and you're using that as a put down, you're putting down God. That's blasphemous. Stop it. When you get who God is, female jokes end. Demeaning caricatures and stereotypes end. Put downs and chauvinism is not a man thing. That's a boy thing. It's not what men do. Boys talk about cooties. Boys talk about girls. Men lift them up. Men protect. Men love. They do not demean. Be a man.
you are not inherently better, smarter, or have some greater image of God stamped on you. Women are the same in regards to these things. They are your sister. Love ladies like your sister. And so men, think biblically. Learn to think biblically. Both men and women are created in the image of God. And they are entitled to the privileges and they are held accountable to the responsibilities that come with reflecting our Creator. And so this call for a woman not to teach or exercise authority over a man, first of all, it cannot mean that God favors one gender over the other because He just doesn't. That's ridiculous. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 21 or 2. Which one? Two, thank you. From cover to cover. There's an equality in essence. I'm sure there's a distinction in roles, as he's wired us a little bit different. But even that distinction has no ranking. It's equal, but different. Similar to the way God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all equal, but they have different roles. There's no ranking there. Different roles does not mean superiority. So it can't mean that it's just one gender over the other. can't mean that. Secondly, this call to uh, that a woman cannot teach or exercise authority over a man, it also can't mean that women aren't to be in ministry. And you just read your Bible. Women in ministry are everywhere. You look at Romans 16 real quick. We, we won't go to anywhere else. We'll just go to Romans 16. And so go to Romans 16. If you are using a Bible that's around you, this is on page 950. Romans 16. Page 950 in the Black Bibles. A little bit to your left if you don't have a Black Bible. Romans 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, that's a lady, a servant, the literal Greek word there is diakonos. That means deacon. And, then, and it's masculine, it's not even deaconess. It's just straight up deacon. And then specific, specifically, a deacon of the church at Centria. This is a title. Phoebe is a deacon of the church at Centria. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and myself as well. She's a financial supporter and of myself as well. And most people believe that, that this book of, like, the reason he's commending her first in this chapter of verse 16 is because she is the one who delivered the letter to the Romans from Paul. She carried it to Rome from Paul in Corinth. And then he continues on. Greek, Prisca and Aquila. Prisca's the, the, the wife here. Mentioned first because more than likely she was more, um, Prevalent, she was more involved in teaching. Meet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epaneia. Golly. Let's try this again. Epinatus. I promise I practiced this in Greek, and now I can't even say it. Who was the first convert to Christ in Asia? Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen. Junia is a female name. My kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles. And they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And my beloved Stachys. Greet Apollos, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. 
Greet my kinsmen, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trephana and Trephosa. Both of those are female names. Greet the beloved Persis, also a lady, who has worked hard in the Lord. Every single time it says worked hard, it's a lady. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrabas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, that's a female name, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And so this long list, there were nine female names there. This long list of women reminds us, if we needed the reminder, that women played an important role in the early church. That ministry in the early church was not confined to men only. These greetings and the other similar passages show that women were engaged in ministries and work just as important as those of men. I mean, who was the first evangelist to the Samaritans? John 4. Woman at the well. Who did Jesus first reveal himself to after the resurrection? Women. Women. Who couldn't even give testimony in court at the time. And so this call for women not to teach or exercise the authority of men, it can't mean that God favors one gender over another. It can't mean that women aren't to be in ministry. And thirdly, it can't mean that a woman's never, ever, ever, ever to teach a man. It can't mean that. I mean, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, it, it can't. Because if it did, that would be denying the priesthood of all believers. Okay, If it did, that would to be to deny both the prophet Joel and Peter who quotes him when he says, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Further, Colossians 3 verses, uh, verse 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So this was a universal call to teaching in the church to all members. And then you also have Priscilla who along with her husband, Aquila taught Apollos the way, even though he was well acquainted and eloquent in the Scriptures. They taught him. And then you have the author of Hebrews kind of chiding the congregation by saying, by this time you ought to be teachers. Saying that to the whole congregation. And then 1 Corinthians 11, which everybody gets weirded out by with Paul's comments about not praying or prophesying with head coverings in the church. What people so often miss is that Paul is assuming that women are praying and prophesying in the corporate church gathering. He's just saying don't do it in such a way that causes distraction or division. And so this call for woman not to teach or exercise authority over man can't mean that God favors one gender over another or that one's superior to another. It can't mean that women aren't to be in ministry and it can't mean that women, a woman is never to ever teach a man. Okay, we see all of those things in Scripture. And so what is it then? What does it mean? Well, again, think context. What is the context here? It is a corporate worship gathering. It's what we're doing right now. And who does the teaching and exercising of authority in the church? The elders. And so the whole point of this text is that women can and should serve in every capacity of the church with the one and only exception being the role of elders. And so number four in your notes, women should help fulfill every role in the church except the role of an elder. Women should help fulfill every role in the church except the role of an elder. 
And so Scripture intends for both men and women to be equally involved in and engaged in ministry. Equally. Absolutely equally involved. But being equally involved in ministry does not entail being interchangeably involved. And the Bible reserves the office of elder to qualified men. Not just to any men, but to qualified men. Which means then, think about it with me for just a minute, that it's not only women who aren't to teach and exercise authority as an elder in the church. It's also the vast, vast, vast majority of men who aren't to teach and exercise authority in the church. It's just a few. And so what's being prohibited here is not a lady teaching in church or, or even standing here in the pulpit under the authority of the elders for a time or two. It's the ongoing elder authority and teaching. Like the, the, the elders have responsibility for the teaching of the word. They have authority for that. And so what's not being prohibited here is a, a lady teaching in the church or even preaching in the church under the authority of the elders. It's also not a lady being equally involved and engaged in ministry. That's not being prohibited. And also, this is not talking about roles outside the church. Really, this has nothing to do with that. CEOs, presidents, this isn't talking about that. The Bible doesn't speak to that. This is about roles in the church. And so again, women should help fulfill every role in the church except the role of an elder. Why? Verse 13, because of created order. Because of created order. And so as we spoke earlier, God created us with complete equality. Men and women, complete equality. Absolutely. But a distinction in roles in the church and in marriage. But make sure that we don't misunderstand that a distinction does not assign superiority. God the Father is not greater than God the Holy Spirit. God the Son is not greater than God the Father. They are equal, but there's a distinction in their roles. Distinction does not assign superiority. What it assigns is responsibility and accountability. And men, we are responsible and accountable for things. And women, we are you are, I said we, you are responsible and accountable for things. Most of those things are the exact same. But there's a few that are specific to our gender. And so this idea of created order, that's what Paul is getting at in verses 13 through 15 in some just really weird wording. But again, just even as Scripture restricts the role of elder to men only, I, I, I have got to hammer and emphasize to you that women should help fulfill every role in the church except the role of an elder. And so you ask, Joe, do you mean deacons? Yes insofar as deacons are functioning as biblical deacons. And here's what I mean by that. Biblically, a deacon is a servant. That is, the literal word is a table waiter. Okay, That is what a deacon does. That's not a position of leadership. It's not a position of authority. It's not a position of teaching. That is what an elder does. But a deacon is a servant. It is a place where you serve. And so in churches where deacons are defined biblically, women should be deacons, just like Phoebe was. In churches where deacons are not serving really as deacons, but they're serving as elders just with a different name, well, in that church, no, probably a lady shouldn't be a deacon. It's not so much about the name, but the function. They're exercising authority. And that's the function. That, and so that's how I would say that. In some churches, yes. Some churches, no, and it depends on how deacons are being used. And we'll get into that a little bit more in two weeks when we get into chapter 3 and it's talking about the qualifications for deacons. But women, like we as a church, should be 
enthusiastic about the myriad of ways that God calls and uses women. And we should rejoice in their ministry in the local church. And my prayer for us as we walk away and think about this is that we would be just as concerned about the error of forbidding what the Lord affirms as we are about the error of affirming what the Lord forbids. We definitely don't want to affirm what the Lord forbids. No, 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 no. We definitely don't want to do that. We also want to make sure that we don't forbid what the Lord affirms. Women should fulfill every role in the church except the role of an elder. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult text. And Father, would we be like the Bereans who search the Scriptures to see if what is said is true? And Father, would you teach us to use these hermeneutical tools of letting Scripture interpret Scripture and being careful to let Scripture be the final arbiter on all things, not our personal opinions, not culture, and not tradition. All those things are good and right insofar as they affirm what Scripture teaches. But when we come to a place that maybe they don't affirm that, Lord, let us conform ourselves to the Word. And so, Father, I pray just with great thankfulness for the wonderful ministry that you have given to ladies in this church and throughout history. Thank you for the faithfulness of moms to teach the Scriptures to their kids. Even as we've been thinking a lot about Billy Graham, as Billy Graham would read the Scriptures to his kids, but then his wife would explain them. And there's a compliment, complimenting relationship between men and women. And so, Father, would you help us to celebrate that? Father, if we have grabbed hold of feminist theology that holds that women are superior to men, would we repent of that? If we have grabbed hold of chauvinistic Theology that holds that men are superior to women. Would we repent and let go of that? And will we understand the equality that you created us in? But that there are distinctions that you have created purposefully. Particularly in marriage and in the church and in society in some way, to some degree as well. And so, God, help us with this. Help us to be humble. And help us to heed the Scriptures. And celebrate the ministry of ladies. Just as we do men. In Christ's name, amen.